Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Seller Roundtable, episode 17 with Amy Weiss and Andy Arnott. <laughs> and today we are talking about big box retail with our very special guest, Timothy Bush. Hello, Tim, and welcome. Thanks so much, Amy and Andy, A-squared, right? Um, yeah, thanks a lot. I bet it's great to be here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to talk all about it. Awesome. Well, Tim, I guess we should start with you tell, you know, our podcast is all about selling on Amazon and uh, kind of retail is really kind of a big mystery to a lot of our listeners. So we would love to hear about you and your backstory and your experience. And, you know, just tell us, you know, the, the whole life story, the shortened version. <laughs> I was going to say, wow. Okay. So back in 19, no. Um, I mean, it, it, what, what, as far as how far back do you want me to go? I mean, I grew up in California. So uh, a little town called Fallbrook, which is in North San Diego County. Uh, uh, when I moved there, uh, it was just this little tiny dinky town and we moved out in the middle of nowhere. And so I had no friends near me. Um, that's where I started. Uh, I started riding motocross because the only way to get from here to there out there was to ride some sort of a motorized vehicle. And so that's where I picked up motocross and motocross kind of got me through, I don't know, geez, junior high and, and high school. And um, I had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, we had avocado groves, basically. And uh, so we had about 10 acres. Half of those were organic and half of those were not. Uh, and back then, organic was this, if you asked my dad, he would say, organic is just a money drain. It's like owning a boat, you know, the stuff that you have to do to the grove to keep it organic and uh, um indifferent from the other groves and get it certified and all that was uh, as a money drain. So I spent a lot of my youth uh, working in the grove and um, picking avocados. And um, I don't think that the grove ever made a dollar um, even up until now, uh, but it was a good write-off. So, um, and we always had really good avocados. I mean, Southern California, uh, I make a really mean guacamole and especially if you're eating organic avocados, man, I could so really... I was going to say, Tim, do you still eat guacamole today? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I love it. And I, like I said, I make a really good guacamole. Um, and occasionally my dad will send us a care package from California with some uh, organic avocados, which is always nice. Or we... And so you said send us a care package. Um, where are you living now and what's going so, on? Oh yeah. So I'm in Orlando, Florida. Uh, I had a client that wanted to purchase a large chunk of my time uh, about seven years ago. And they were here in, in uh, Central Florida. And so they moved us out here, which we wanted to get to the East Coast anyway. Most of my business was on the East Coast. And it's hard when you're trying to go for a 30-minute meeting with a retailer. And it takes three days to accomplish a 30-minute meeting because it's just so far to go. So um, being on the East Coast made things, I think, easier. And so, yeah, so we're in Central Florida. Um, and really enjoying it. It's except right now starting to turn very hot. I mean, really hot, super hot in the nineties every single day. So already. 
It is roasting here in Texas as well. So um, tell us about your past jobs and, you know, college, schooling, and what you're doing now. Well, it's funny because I just re released a podcast this morning uh, uh, with a brand expert. His name is David Lemley. And we were talking about, we were talking about like, what did you want to be when you grew up? And, and he said he wanted to be Pablo Picasso. And I was, I was thinking, so that's one I've never heard before. Um, but I was talking about my first job, which was, and my actually it was my first introduction to, to retail too, because uh, I got a job at a little um, auto parts store in Fallbrook called Cars Auto Parts. And interestingly, the guy that owned it, his last name really was Car C A R R. And uh, my job there was to keep the back room shelves straight and nice, and then to deliver parts to like all the. Uh, gas stations in town that you know called and needed a part and uh, I just remember thinking um, I was never you know all the adults at the time because I think I was maybe just 16 and all the adults just hung out at the front counter chit-chatting that's all it seemed to me that's all they did is just chit chat <laughs> and I was like I'm the only one doing any work around here and uh, so yes that was my first foray and after that I um, to, so my, to, to be able to pay for the gas in my car, I worked at uh, um, Chevron as a gas station attendant. Back then, we actually had full service pumps and everything. You could uh, go drive in to get your gas pumped. Um, so I did that, and uh, that was in high school. So in high school, I was a swimmer and a water polo player. And uh, when I went to college, I became a crew. I was I I, I had had enough of being in the water and decided to be on the water for a while. So I rode on the crew team all the way through college, which was super fun. Um, really enjoyed that. And when I got out of college, I went to work in retail. Um, and you know, I don't, if, if your goal is not to be in retail, don't start there because they get their hooks in you and they pay you a lot of money. And uh, um, at the time, it seems like a lot of money. And at the time, you're making probably three times more than anybody else you know. And then the next thing you know, 10 years goes by, and then you're not making. Then they, all those people are now partners in a law firm or something, and now they're making more than you. But yeah, so I started working for a company called Captron World of Nintendo. And at the time, this was in the late 80s, and uh, Nintendo was still like it. I mean, they were massive and they had the monopoly on all the games and we had this company I was working for had decided this cool concept they made these little kiosks and they plopped them in the middle of the mall and it was the only place at the time that you could actually go and test out a Nintendo game uh, at the store before you bought it and it was this brand new concept and so I worked there a while and then after uh, uh, after college I, I ended up uh, being their operations manager and I flew around the country opening up a bunch of these stores all over the country. Very cool. uh, fast forwarding. I mean, so I went from there to Toys R Us and then I went from Toys R Us to Office Depot and Barnes and Noble and Bed Bath and Beyond. And I worked for most of the major uh, big box retail chains, which is uh, um, probably Toys R Us is where I got 90% of everything that I know about running uh, merchandising a big box retail store. And so most of what I teach or talk about, or when I talk to buyers about merchandising, it still comes from back in the early nineties when a lot of these stores were really, you had to be a merchant, you had to figure things out. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't these CAD planograms anymore. They just would give you blocks of space. So, you know, put these action figures here, but as a store director, you had to figure that all out, how we're going to get them in there. So there was a lot of, um, 
learning that went involved in pretty much everything I know about merchandising I learned at Toys R Us and probably everything I learned about not what to, what not to do also I learned at Toys R Us I think. So how did you feel when Toys R Us went out of business? Well I wrote a I did a podcast on it um um, it, and it's, uh, I mean, if you haven't listened to that one and anybody that's in retail or, or does anything with retail, you should listen to it because I put a lot of anecdote. I mean, there was stuff that happened at Toys R Us that would just, just blow your mind. I mean, pe- people who shop in retail are, they're just crazy. They're <laughs> crazy. I mean, um, but there's one story I told, and this is a true story. I mean, uh, this, this lady comes to me uh, and she's holding her daughter's hand and she's, she leans over, she whispers to me and she says, see that ride along over there. And back, I don't know if you remember back then there was these big cars that you big motorized cars. They're called big wheels. Not at, like the big wheels. Um, man, they weren't called big wheels. I, I can't think of it right now, but they were big and you could sit inside them. They were motorized. Yeah, And like, that was, was a big deal to go to yeah. Toys R Us and, and, Get, get in one of those. Yeah. Barbie. Drive it around yeah. like you're a big shot. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, yeah. See that Barbie uh, car over there. Yeah. My daughter, she pooped in that. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm looking at her like, and did you, she's like, she, you might want to check that out and clean that out. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> That's your daughter. She just was, she pooped in there. Do you want me to go get it? And that, I mean, geez, that we could go, I could t- do a whole two hours on, stuff that happened at Toys R Us. But yeah, so when they went under, actually, it started way before that, because when Charles Lazarus, who uh, was the founder of Toys R Us, stepped down, uh, the company never really recovered from that. Uh, And when the person who has the passion, who doesn't come to work because he's a billionaire or a millionaire, he comes to work every day because he wants to, and he still drives the same old like shabby pickup truck. And uh, there's something about that, that that transfers to a company and they still have this soul to them. And then once that person steps down, everybody else is just trying to fill that money void. Like, Hey, I just want to make all that, that money that he was making it. And so it struggled. And then, um, and then target figured out something that toy that would ruin and kill Toys R Us forever. And Toys R Us still never figured out how to combat that was target decided that they would kill their whole toy department and then rebuild it with just the hot toys and they lived in this hot toy 90 day whatever world where uh if you wanted the very hottest thing that's where you went to target and toys the way toys R Us made their money was people would go there for the hot toys but then they would get diapers and formula and they, they would get all this stuff that that they weren't there to get but once all the hot you know if jimmy needed a present people would just go to target and once those people stopped coming to toys r us it just was this massive, I mean, it was just this uh, avalanche and, and they never recovered from that. And that's a, I mean, that's an important thing in retail is to be able to drive traffic to your stores with whatever, you know, whatever and tactics you, you can use to keep you, uh, you know, at the forefront. I mean, so, Target did some cool, I mean, we used to have back when their videos were a thing, uh, instead of streaming, we used to have Target Tuesday because Target would release all the brand new CDs, but movie CDs on or DVDs on uh, on Tuesday. And my wife and I, we would be there every Tuesday to see what was new. I mean, at one point, I think we had something like 500 DVDs, um, and then you know, streaming came out. But they capitalized and killed that one part of it. Yeah. Anyway, you could keep me going on that. Timothy, <laughs> it makes me it makes me think of two things. What you all what you just said. The first thing is is the the poop story reminds me of. Uh, People of Walmart, have you ever been to that website? If not, you absolutely need to check that out. 
I'm sure that I can pretty much relate. Yeah, it's epic. It's literally like <laughs> it's like real pi pictures of people that have been spotted in Walmart. It is epic. If you have not, you can literally waste hours on that website. It's fantastic. The second thing is is uh, you know, soul of the company, visionary things like that. First thing that pops into my mind when I think of that is Apple. You know, I mean, yes. just look at the decline of Apple since Steve Jobs died. I mean, you know, it's still a, a very powerful company, but the innovation's gone. I mean, you look at an Android phone compared to an iPhone now and, and the Android stuff blows it away. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely see, um, you know, where you're coming from there is, you know, once the soul of the company, the founder, the, the, the visionary, the, the guy who's passionate or girl who's passionate leaves, it's, it's a whole new company. I used to call Steve Jobs the wider of, of technology because, you know, he was in Apple, they kicked him out and then the whole thing went down the tubes and so they're like, Steve, you have to come back. It reminds me of Dodge City, you know, when they fired Wyatt Earp out of Dodge City and he left and then Dodge City just went to hell and they had to have him come back and clean the city up again. But uh, it, it's hard. Um, I mean, Steve Jobs, unfortunately, that's, you know, he, he not only, he was just the brains behind so many things. It, it, you can't replace that part of it. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So... so Tim, you were talking about, um, you know, you're before I, I interrupted and got you off on the Toys R Us tangent, you were right. talking about, you know, what you were working on. You've worked in a ton of retail. So tell us a little bit, skip forward to what you do now and what your specialty is now today. <laughs> wow. We're going to skip quite a bit forward. Yeah. Cause you're like TikTok. Um, yeah, so uh, I own TLB Consulting. We just passed 10 years, so very proud of that. And in fact, uh, at the time that I passed 10 years, I was dealing with some personal stuff, so I didn't even realize it until somebody shot me a note on, uh, on LinkedIn and said, hey, congrats on the 10 year. I went, oh my gosh, 10 years. So TLB Consulting started out as a, a small concierge consulting company where we basically only did Costco. So um, uh, working with Costco in uh, a couple of companies, I, I kind of became an expert at their business model. And so TLB Consulting was really started to help people get into Costco. And it was very successful. But the problem was, is most people that would come to us, they weren't ready to go to Costco. And so uh, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Um, and so I, I don't ever tell anybody, oh, I can't help you. Um, you know, uh, yeah, oh, you can't go to Costco now? Yeah, sorry, we'll see you later. No, so we started a part of the company called uh, the Total Sell Solution, and that's uh, quickly became the biggest part of our company, which is where we kind of, people outsource their their sales system to us, their, their, their sales. And it came at a really good time because uh, at the time, uh, unemployment was huge and people like me, sales, VP of sales level people were a dime a dozen. I mean, you could find them on a street corner. And, but the weird thing was, is people were laying off their salespeople like nobody's business, but they still needed to sell. And uh, because outsourced salespeople come out of a different line on the P&L, they don't come out of payroll, comes out of a different bucket. They could, easily, they could lay off VPs of sales and then turn around and hire me. And, uh, um, and that's what a lot of people did during that time. And that's kind of what helped launch the, the, the company and help it grow. Um, and so that's still a big part of, of TLB uh, Consulting is our total sales solution. And now we have three arms of TLB Consulting, which is the consulting arm, the uh, podcast on the shelf. And then um, we just launched, um, and there's no website to it yet. That's how new it is. But we just launched uh, this year, we launched the Mastermind Group Series, and uh, of which you're part of uh, a mastermind that's going on right now. 
and that mastermind series is, uh, has monthly masterminds, but it also has classes and workshops. And, um, I'm hoping and, and think, uh, seriously that that will be the bigger part of the business going, um, going forward, you know, just knowledge, um, you know, uh, self-educating is, uh, turning out to be this huge part. I mean, I watch my daughter do it every day. You know, she wants to learn how to build clay figurines. She watches 110 hours of how to build clay figurines online and then gives me a laundry list of the things that she needs. And the next thing you know, she's killing stuff in the oven. Um, I mean, the things that kids can teach themselves just by watching videos online uh, is amazing. So self-education, I think, is a big thing. And, and so the TLB MMG part of the company, I think, is going to be big. Awesome. Yeah. And you know, so this is mostly a podcast for Amazon sellers and e-commerce. And I know you do work with some Amazon sellers and some, some brands that are on Amazon. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with some brands who've gone from Amazon to retail and vice versa? Yeah. So my actual experience in Amazon started because I sold them. I used to sell Amazon. I remember when Amazon was just one building in downtown, um, in downtown Seattle and uh, we would go there and you go up the elevator and it was just this huge uh, room of cubicles and you had to do breadcrumbs because if they weren't going to take you back to the original door you came in there's no way to find your way back but uh, I started with Amazon actually selling them product uh, and um, and you know putting it for sale as a vendor uh, and back then uh, there was no vendor central. Uh, it, it wasn't the vendor central allowed and even seller central. None of that existed. We were just selling products on Amazon. And back then they used to be just as picky as regular retail, you know? Um, and so it was hard to get products on there as it was to get them, you know, on Costco.com or whatever, you know, as far as e-commerce goes. Um, so I spent all this time putting my clients and selling their products to, uh, to Amazon as vendors. And then I watched as Amazon just crushed their pricing. Um, I, I just, in one year, uh, Amazon switched from just selling their products and everything was going great to the next thing you know, you wake up and I'm, I'm, I would call my bar and say, look, you guys just dropped that price on that $10. Why'd you do that? Well, cause we can. Um, and, and so it no longer became a viable business model because we were in other retailers and people were calling us saying uh with clients saying hey you know amazon's selling it for you know ten dollars you know we need to drop our price and it was a nightmare so i spent a whole year uh, uh transitioning all my clients from vendors to sellers and there wasn't a good process for it back then it took forever and uh, uh it was just this very difficult thing because a lot of times amazon did not want to let go of it and, uh, um, and in yeah. many cases, brands are not used to some of these bigger brands are not used to selling to consumers, right? They're used to selling to retailers. And so now you're moving them to this model where they suddenly have to care about advertising in a different way. And, you know, and actually writing good product listings and search engine optimization. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, it was crazy. And of course, uh, my specialty has never been big brands. So um, I work with the uh, entrepreneurs, people who come up with their own products and, and bring it to market. We specialize in helping people that have one product uh, get that into big retail, which is a tremendous um, uh, feed in of itself. So uh, yeah, but it was a big transition because, you know, Amazon had written all the copy done the optimization. They had done everything. And all, all of a sudden we're going 
er, you know, we have to do everything and we have to fulfill it and we have to handle customer service and we have to deal with reviews and we have to deal with refunds. Oh my gosh, what's going on? And um, so it was a huge transition. And, uh, um, and so we were kind of in that forefront of it all happening. So uh, um, people started coming to me, not because I was an expert at Amazon. You're far better at Amazon than I am. Uh, because I was kind of one of the only people at the time doing it. There weren't these companies out there that were, hey, give us your product, we'll put it on Amazon and we'll manage it for you. There was nothing. And so people were coming to us because we kind of were switching people over and we had actually people come to us because they needed help getting from a vendor to a seller. And that was kind of my entry into, into Amazon. Awesome. Yeah, and so, Tim, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, Tim, and I think, uh, you, you made a good point. I think that was one of the main reasons why vendor uh, central is imploding is because brands are finding out that Amazon's not taking good care of them. You know, when they're slashing their prices, they're not following uh, the maps, you know, they're, they're doing all these things that are kind of, you know, not, not treating the brands well. So the brands are going, you know, we're just going to, you know, either hire, like you said, hire somebody to help us make that transition or bring teams on, you know, for the bigger brands in house to manage all this stuff. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be a better ROI, even, you know, hiring our own people on and managing these, you know, the, these products on Amazon. And, and I think that's why even Amazon notices that. And that's why they're, they're starting to push everybody to uh, the, the, the uh, private label, you know, um, third party seller, um, you know, venue, because they, they just see the writing on the wall, I think, for vendor, uh, vendor central. Yeah, and I remember distinctly, and I probably can dig up this email if I tried hard enough. But I had put this uh, uh, brand on um, on Amazon, and it was selling well. It, there was it, it was a good price point. There was no reason to do anything with it. And then one day they dropped it, like thirty dollars. It was a, like a hundred ninety nine dollar product. They dropped it thirty dollars. And so I wrote my buyer an email and said, "Hey, why did you drop the price?" And he said, "Well, first of all, I don't even have to tell you that. Um, secondly, you signed paperwork that said that we control the price." So I can put the price at whatever I want and you have no say in it. And, um, and I just remember thinking, wow, that's hard. And I said, so the only control you do have at that point is stop selling them, right? You know, just stop the flow of goods. They're still going to do whatever they want with the goods that they have. But that was at the time, the only option you had, if things were going poorly, uh, you just stop selling them because all your other retail that you were in the middle of, those people were screaming bloody murder. Right, because people would just comparison shop nowadays with all yeah. the technology available and go, why can I buy this at Target for, you know, $100 and on Amazon I can get it for 30 Like, it, that doesn't make any sense. That's the whole point of MAP in the first place, right? Well, MAP is such a tricky thing because, you know, you hear MAP, MAP policies, and for those of you who don't know what a MAP policy is, a minimum advertised price policy, and uh, there's no price fixing. Price fixing in the U.S. is against the law. So you, you have to have a reason. If you're going to sell your products to Target for one price and, and uh, um, uh, another retailer for another price and they're not the same, you have to have, be able to show what the reason was for that. It has to be legitimate and has to be across the board. A map policy that's written down that you have a retailer sign is a dangerous tool because let's say you're selling to Walmart and you're selling to a bunch of other retailers and everybody's in map, map but then... Walmart decides to break map. Now in your map policy, if it says you get three strikes and you're out, 
it's against the law now that that's a signed document for you not to hold Walmart accountable to that. Well, maybe Walmart holds 80% of your overall business and you're going to slap their hand and, and stop doing business with them because they violated map. You don't want to, nobody wants to do that. So I never recommend to my clients that they put a map policy. I, I always say, have your minimum advertised price, talk to your people about what you want to sell your product at. And if people violate it, stop selling them. Um, but if you put a big uh, policy that's written and signed in, 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 uh, in place, you've got to hold everybody to that exact same standard, no matter how much, no, no matter how much of your business they hold. And sometimes that decision becomes super, super difficult. And speaking of holding business, Tim, I mean, there are so many private label sellers out there who are probably wondering, why would I want to go into retail? Like, why do people come to you and try to get their products into retail? What is the benefit of that? Well, there's a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of benefits. Why people come to me now um, is I think that they're nervous um, because they have uh, all their eggs in one basket. And, and even if they're doing great, um, you know, it's just common sense to start expanding and diversifying. You wouldn't put all your money on, the, on one stock uh, and just hold it there and hope that it continues to climb. You know, any broker will tell you, hey, let's take that big chunk of money and spread it out over a bunch of things so that if this guy goes down, you're still leverage, you know, you still have uh, other things that are working for you. And retail is no different. So if you're on Amazon only, maybe they got a scare. I mean, this last year, I had three clients, each one individually, get their products pulled from Amazon for no reason. Gone, done. Um, one, which is a toy company, at holiday, at the start of fourth quarter, they do 80% of their business at, at holiday, and for the first six weeks of holiday, gone. And uh, I will say um, uh, that there, there was legitimate reason for that one, and we worked that out, but I still have a client that his major product is still pulled off of Amazon, and that happened back in November. So maybe they got a scare, and they started saying, wow, you know, I see Amazon can kind of do whatever they want. Um, I, I have another client that um, I think I, we were talking about the pesticide thing. Have you heard about this? Yeah, we've helped a lot of people with the pesticide issue. <laughs> yeah, and his product was pulled down for uh, over a month. And it's, it's a drain pan that goes underneath your dishwasher. And all it said in his listing was that um, it, it stops the growth of mold. Well, he worded it wrong. And so the actual drain pan doesn't stop the growth of mold. The fact that it catches water and drains it out that in of itself stops the mold, but, but Amazon's algorithm, I guess, caught that verbiage and said, well, if it's killing mold, it must be a pesticide. It's not labeled as a bed. We don't have all the paperwork. And so they just froze it. And yeah. So I think all yeah, these that things, happened to like thousands of people, like right. all at once, it was like, they crawled all the listings at one time and they just took like everybody down. So, you know, we have all these Amazon forever to admit it to us. I mean, we didn't, <laughs> we'd been uh, emailing and talking to them for weeks and they oh. finally sent us a letter that said why. And in two days, listings back up. So, yeah. um, but I think people see that and they get scared. And so they start thinking, Hey, I should diversify. And, and then they call us and say, how do I get into, how do I get my product off of Amazon and into retail? Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.